Father, I thank you that we can come right into your presence, even though we have been such sinners. And Jesus, I am I'm so eternally grateful that you would look upon a sinner like me and you would wash away my sin through the precious blood of your son, Jesus, and you would invite me back into your presence. Lord, I confess, we all confess how... Um, how incredibly far we have fallen short of your perfect standard for life and godliness. Uh, we have all fallen short. And uh, Lord, we don't want to have that pride, uh, that hypocrisy that says that we, we think we're all good uh, and we don't need you. God, we need your mercy. Uh, we want to be a church and a family that is very, very keenly aware of how how far we fall short of your perfect standard. And, and thank you for your law that teaches us just how basically terrible we are. And yet, God, combined with that truth, you give such a wonderful and healing gospel that uh, sets us free from all of our failures. Jesus, you have um, not only declared the truth about who we were, but you have saved us and, and, and washed us clean of all of our sin. And we remember that, Lord, and we place our hope and faith in that. We, uh, we could never do anything to be right with you or to be right people apart from the work, Jesus, that you did on the cross of Calvary. You gave your life, your perfect life that was perfect. You gave it in exchange for our sin. And all that sin was laid upon you. And we love, we love you for loving us first. Even when we were sinners, you did this. Even before we knew that we needed you, you did this wonderful, wonderful um, giving for us. You thought of us on the cross as you were being um, poured out as an offering and a sacrifice for sin. Jesus, you knew us. You knew that we would someday come to know you. You knew that someday we would realize how much we have done to offend God and that there is one way for that to be erased and that is through your death on the cross and faith in that sacrifice. So God, I pray that your truth and your love and your gospel would spread in our hearts like a wildfire and God, that we would have a, a new and fresh life and meaning to our life this morning. Your name I pray. Amen. All right. This morning, we are looking at Mark chapter 12. We're about, we're at the very end of it, uh, verses 35 through 44. And the title of today's sermon, uh, and I like this one, is called The Hypostatic Union and You. You remember um, in the latest Avengers movie, uh, they were doing those educational videos with Captain America. Um, and, and it was like, you know, your health and you, I can't remember what it was called in this most recent movie, but uh, it's these lo those little educational videos uh, that are super cheesy. Um, well, I liked those videos and I thought that uh, that would make a funny title for today's message because the hypostatic union and you, um, what in the world is the hypostatic union? Well, that's what we're going to learn about today. We're going to talk about it today. It's actually really super duper important. Um, and very, very few people even have ever heard of this. Um, but I think uh, you guys, by the end of this, you're going to think, ah, that wasn't that big a deal because uh, you actually know all about it. Um, and if you haven't known about it, it's going to kind of blow your mind, uh, the truth of what the hypostatic union is. Before we get into that, we're going to look at three separate little, little stories, just a couple sentences, each story today. And, uh, at the end of, of Mark chapter 12, and they might seem like they're unrelated, but really, uh, I think they are all actually really connected. And uh, I'm really excited to share with you and, and to have some of these truths that are, that are taught to us today really kind of unfolded in our minds and in our hearts. Um, so these three little sections, I think they're connected. Let's, let's dive into it. You know, we've been studying this last week of Jesus's life. We're at the end of the book of Mark. He's been going through his last week and he's answered every question, every punch thrown at him. Um, 
they he has answered every single one flawlessly. They've asked him about government. They've asked him about money. They've asked him about all these different issues that the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders of that day, they had problems with God and his word. And, and they asked him about all of them. And he's answered all of them just perfectly. And now he punches back. Now he's starting to ask them some questions. Um, Jesus basically, this morning, he's going to tell his adversaries that they don't get it, that they, uh, they, they, they put themselves up as people who know and understand who God is, but they really have no clue about their own scriptures, about their God. They don't know who, they don't know him, but he knows them. We're going to see that today. And he's going to show them how they can really find what they're looking for. Uh, if, if they really want to know God, if they really want to serve him, he's going to show them how that can happen today. So we're going to see three sections today. The first section, he's going to say, you don't really know me. Um, and that's the, when we are going to learn about the hypostatic union, what that weird term is all about. Uh, he's saying, you don't really know my identity. The second thing we're going to learn about today is that I do know all about you, Jesus would say. Uh, he's going to tell these guys that they only care about what they can get out of life. And so he's going to tell them their identity. So he's going to say, first, you know, you guys don't know my identity. Second, I do know your identity. And third, we're going to learn that uh, he is going to teach us, or from Jesus' perspective, I'm going to teach you and I'm going to transform you. I'm going to give you a transformed identity. I'm going to give you a new identity. Um, he's going to basically teach us how we can be uh, more concerned with what we give in this life than what we get. Uh, and that's a real transformation that happens as we follow uh, the selfless Jesus Christ. All right, so let's just dive right in. There's three lessons we're going to learn today. You don't know me. I do know all about you, and I can transform you. Uh, but let's learn first about uh, my identity, the identity of Jesus, he's going to say here. Uh, and so the question he would ask is like, do you really even know who I am? Do you know who I am? Uh, you don't really know me. And uh, so in our text, it says this. Jesus answered and said, while he taught in the temple, how is it? that the scribes say that the Christ, or the Messiah, is the son of David. For David himself said by the Holy Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, David himself calls him Lord. How is it then that he is his son? And the common people heard him gladly. Okay, well, when you first read that, it can sound a bit confusing, but let me explain basically what's going on. The scribes should have known who Jesus was, okay? So the thing is, it was all right there in the scriptures. And Jesus says here that when David spoke, he spoke by the Holy Spirit. David was a guy who wrote like a, a whole bunch of the Psalms and a whole bunch of, of Samuel is about him and, the, and, and kings and all this stuff. Uh, is is connected with David. And so this tells us one quick lesson of the Bible, that the Bible is inspired, inspired by the Holy Spirit. So a lot of people ask, how is the Bible the Word of God? How do I know that the Bible is the source of all truth and absolutely perfect and nothing is wrong? Like we claim, okay? Because I definitely claim the Bible is absolutely perfect. It has nothing wrong in it. It teaches the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. How do I know that? Okay, how did that happen? Well, the truth is, God used men who are totally flawed and sinners, but he used them, and he governed them and guided them like a, like a hand going into a glove to write these scriptures that are perfect. And like, how do we know that the scriptures are supernatural? How do I know that that's true? Well, there's a lot of reasons that we can point to, but the biggest verifiable reason that we can, like, prove that the word of God is perfect and and is God's word is that it has these prophecies. It declares what is going to happen in real events before it happens. And then these prophecies are fulfilled. Just with Jesus, there are hundreds of prophecies that the Old Testament gave that were fulfilled to the letter 
about Jesus's first coming. Okay, His second coming hasn't happened yet. We have hundreds more prophecies about what that's going to be like. We know that they're all going to be true and they're all going to come to pass just like his first coming. And so, and that's just one thing. There's, there's historical events. There's kings. There's a, there's a king named King Cyrus. And the Bible prophesied him by name hundreds of years before he was born. Before he was born. And the Bible says a king named King Cyrus would come and would, would let the people return to uh, Israel after they were taken captive by the nation of Babylon. And this was fulfilled to the letter. And those are just some simple examples that I could give. There are literally hundreds of examples of these prophecies. And, and right here, Jesus is saying, the answer, guys, that you're looking for is found in the word of God. So what do we do? We study the word of God every week. With my boys, I read the word of God every morning. Why? Not because it's a hobby, not because it's, uh, a rule that we must follow. It's because it is the source of truth and life. It is the way that we can hear God's voice. If we have our trust in Jesus, we can hear his voice through this. Um, and these scribes, these Pharisees, these people who had the word at this time should have known who the Messiah was, who Jesus was, and Jesus is embarrassing them by pointing out that they have no clue who he was. They weren't putting the pieces together of the puzzle. Yes, it was kind of a puzzle. There were some conflicting reports in the word of God of who the Messiah would be. And we're going to break down and see what Jesus, how Jesus points out these conflicting reports. Because the, the Bible basically said the Messiah would come and he would be a king and he would be great and he would be the Lord and he would be the Messiah. But it also said he would be poor and he would be weak and he would be a man. And these two different ideas were vastly confusing to people. They couldn't figure out how two so very different things could be combined into one person. So let's break down what Jesus says about himself right here. He said, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ the son of, is the son of David? So Christ is another word for Messiah. That's the title given in the Old Testament to Jesus or the one who would save his people from their sins. And it says, for David himself said by the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Your footstool. What is going on here? is is uh, the scribes taught and they understood and they saw that the Messiah was supposed to be a man. Okay, so they, they did get that part. But the where they have a problem is they taught that he would only be a man. They were always looking for the man of the Messiah. They, they were looking for just a normal man who would be born in Bethlehem. They knew that part too, that he would be born in Bethlehem. They knew that he would be a descendant of David from scriptures like what Jesus just quoted, that the, that the Messiah would come from David's line. God had promised David, one of your children is going to save your people and the whole world. God promised David, David that. Well, Jesus here, he quotes David from Psalm 110. And he says, therefore, David calls himself, calls him, excuse me, David calls the Messiah Lord, Jesus said. How is it then that this Messiah is also his son? And the common people heard him gladly, it says. Well, how can the Messiah, this is Jesus's question, how can the Messiah be both the son of David and the Lord of David? Because in, you got to understand, in that culture, to be the son was always less. The son was always less in, in importance or in standing. The father, the ancestor, was seen as the greatest. And so you had to, it always went down as you went down in, in, having, in the generations, okay? But he has, he's asking here, how can this man be both less than David, the son of David, and the Lord of David, or more important, um, and basically what he's saying here is how is the Messiah both man and God? And the scribes, they had no answer because they don't know who Jesus is and they don't understand what he's even talking about. But Jesus asked the question, not just for them, and it's not recorded just for them, but it's recorded for you and me. We have to wrestle with this question. How is the Messiah both God and 
man. Why is the Messiah both God and man? And we can find the answer to this question in the whole rest of the Bible. It's, it's there. It's sitting there. And we have to dig a little bit. We have to, to, to think to understand this. But according to Scripture, Jesus Christ was both a man and God. At the same time, he was fully man and fully God. And that term, that idea that God, that Jesus was both man and God was called the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union. I was talking with a really good friend last night who was telling me that he heard of a band one time called the hypostatic union. And sounds like they rock to me. But uh, great name. And it's what it means. And you can Google this. You can look on Wikipedia. But it basically, it describes the dual nature of Christ. We only have one nature. We are men. At the, at, when we are born, we are men. We have the nature of man. We are fully men. Okay? But Jesus was fully man and fully God. Okay? Now, Scripture proves this emphatically. It, it describes it so clearly. Scripture says that Jesus was born. All men are born. Okay? You can't be just a spirit. Like, some, like, some people think Jesus was just like a spirit. Uh, but he was fully man. Okay? He was born. He breathed. He ate. He talked, he hugged, he kissed, he had parents, he had relationships, and more than that, he was able to be killed. He was able to be murdered. His body ceased living just like every other man, okay? But more than that, he was also God. Well, how can we prove that he was God? Today, we have really no problem thinking that he was a man. We have a problem thinking that he was God. In in the liberal world, in the in the world that just looks at things with just the eyes of men, we have a hard time. And, and so we excuse away all the things he did. But the Bible emphatically claims and proves that Jesus was God. He did things only God can do. Not only could he forgive sins and things like that, but uh, like esoteric things, but he could heal diseases that could not be healed with even modern medicine. He had power over the spiritual world, and the spiritual world had to listen to him, things that men back then knew that only God had the power over. He, most of all, most of all, he had the, had the power over the one thing no man has ever had power over, and that is death. Not only could he raise other people from the dead, but he himself raised from the dead the power of God, showing that he was God. He had that power, and death has no hold over him. So these, these uh, proofs in the Bible, and we could get into so many more. I'm just throwing a bunch of them at the wall, and if any of them stick on your face, you know, you can hold on to those. But there are so many proofs, wonderful proofs that show that he was both God and man. So this hypo, hypostatic union, really important to understand. Now, why does it matter? Why is it important? Because if he was just a man, then he's insane or he's bad, okay? But what, what do people do today? They want to discount everything Jesus said because they said, oh, he was just a man. He was a good man. I mean, he did great things. He, he said wonderful things, but he was just a man. Okay, but think about that statement. Think about it. If he was just a man, then... Um, then we shouldn't worship him and he's not God, okay? But what did Jesus actually say? If you're going to say he was a good man and we should listen to the teachings that he, that he taught, then you have to listen to all that he said. And some of the things he said, he said, I am God and you, mu you must worship me. And I'm the only way to heaven is by faith in my death on the cross. These are things he said. They came out of his mouth. So either he's a good man and he actually meant those things, and it's actually true, so he is man and God, or he cannot be a good man, because if he is not God, but he said he was God, then he's lying, or he's insane, or he's the devil. You can't have a man saying he's God, and not be God, but still be a good person. That's a lie, and that already is not part of God's nature, or not good. So you have to, this is getting us to this ultimatum that we see with Jesus that keeps coming up. 
you either recognize who he is or you ignore who he is and walk away, turn away. But if you recognize that he, yes, is both God and man, then you have to listen to what he says. But people don't want to listen to what he says because what Jesus says is very narrow. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man can get to the Father except through me. And if Jesus says, I am the way, and you must follow me, and you must accept what I've done on your behalf, then that means there is no other way. All the other religions must be false. He claims this. And it's not, we don't say that to condemn people. We claim, we say it to offer the true rescue from sin, the true rescue the true way to heaven. In as much love and humility as we have, we can say there is one way and he has offered himself. Jesus has said, I am the way, the truth and the life and no man comes to the father except through me. And that's what the real point is. People don't want to be confined into one way. They want to keep their options open. They want to say, well, I, if I follow him, I can't do everything I want to do. And so I'd rather do what I want to do. So let me find another philosophy or another way besides him that I can follow or that I can believe in that will also get me there. Like the many roads, there are many roads to heaven. There's many roads to God. But Jesus said, no. Jesus said, I'm sorry, but there's one way. God had one son and gave him to us in Jesus Christ. And Jesus was that son. And he said, this is the way. And we, you, we have to make the decision based on that gift, that truth. Is, are we going to decide, yeah, that's what I, I believe or no. I'm going to go my own way. History lesson. Ready? History time. The Athanasian Creed is fun to look at. And this was in the, you know, just a couple hundred years after Jesus, the church was, was uh, getting together and recognizing all the doctrines that the Bible taught and kind of setting things in order. And they, they recognized this doctrine of the hypostatic union as really important. And this is what they said. I'm going to just, just read how they described the hypostatic union, okay? They said, he, Jesus, is God from the essence of the Father begotten before time, and he is human from the essence of his mother, born in time, completely God, completely human, with a rational soul and human flesh, equal to the Father as regards divinity, less than the Father as regards humanity. Although he is God and human, yet Christ is not two, but one. He is one. However, but not by his divinity being turned into flesh, but by God's taking humanity to himself. He is one, certainly not by the blending of his essence, but by the unity of his person. For just as one human is both a rational soul and flesh, so too the one Christ is both God and human. Lots of words but actually very clearly written. Very, it, it, it explains it, I think, in a really neat way. It's, it's clear, isn't it? That Jesus is both David's son and David's savior. Jesus is both David's son and God's son. Jesus is both human and divine. He is both man and God. And that is what we mean when we say the hypostatic union. So now you can impress all your friends that you know the term, the hypostatic union. And uh, so go out there and have some conversations about Jesus and the hypostatic union. You'll be, it'll, I want to hear those stories. So now that you know who he is, okay, there's really no evading the issue. There's no sitting on the fence. You must decide whether you're for him or against him, whether you think he's telling the truth or you think he's lying. And you are going to make that decision right now, today. You're going to make it again tomorrow and again the next day, but make no doubt about it. You make this decision of which one of these you're going to believe every day. And it, your response to that truth that's been presented to you determines what path you are on for an eternal life decision. Your accountability has never been greater. Now that you know who Jesus is, 
you have accountability to say no now and say, we're not going to follow him is only to invite greater judgment when you stand before God and explain why you rejected his precious beloved son that he loves so much. How could we reject him? God gave him to us. So please make your choice wisely. Your eternal destiny is at stake. And Jesus is is saying, I have nothing but love for you. I have nothing but mercy and grace for you. Follow me, follow me. It's worth it to give up all of our hopes and dreams and follow him, to give up all our ways and follow him. It truly is the most wonderful relationship in the world. And what's cool is, check this out, we see the hypostatic union and the dual nature of Jesus in the art of uh, in history, okay? So I'm going to throw up this picture on the screen. Uh, You see that picture right there? This picture right here, there, is... um, is weird, right? But this is actually a picture of the one of the oldest or the oldest what's called icon or painting of Jesus in the world that people know of, okay? Very interesting picture. But notice uh, that his eyes look totally different. Why is that? His left eye and his right. In fact, his whole face looks different from the left side to the right side, okay? So what they've done is they've looked at it a little deeper and they've Look at that. If you cut the picture in half, it's actually two different people, two different images that they smooshed together to make that one. It's these two images. And they did that for the reason to show the dual nature of Christ. And he's both God and man. All right. So that's interesting. All right. So we're going to move on quickly to the second little story that we have uh, the first story said, you don't know who I really am to these these scribes, but he's going to now say, I do know who you are. So uh, he's going to tell them about their identity and their pride. So he said uh, to them in his teaching, beware of the scribes, beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes. They love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues and the best places at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive greater condemnation. Okay, so our second little story here is really neat. Uh, it's, it, he, he, he just told the scribes, you don't know who I am, but now he says, I do know who you are. Uh, you guys are proud lovers of many things, and your pride and that you love this pride that has infected your hearts. And we're going to look at each of these things quickly. First, they were proud lovers of power suits. Proud lovers of power suits. Uh, you know, in, 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 uh, on um, Wall Street, you know, you got these guys that wear the power suits and, and uh, it's basically equivalent to that. These were the long robes. It says that these scribes love to wear long robes robes. And these long robes were impossible to work in. They were white, uh, pure white. They didn't like them to be dirty. And uh, the, the common people wore different colors or even dark muted colors or bright colors, but uh, they were generally not cleaned uh, that clean. But these, these guys loved to stand out and wear their fancy suits. They were proud lovers of power suits. And this is this idea in their hearts was like, look at me. Okay. Now, Translate this to 2020. You know what this is? This is Instagram. Look at me. <laughs> the, the, the philosophy, the entire philosophy of the selfie picture, look at me and like it and, and comment on it. This is the Instagram philosophy. These guys would have been all over Instagram. It would have been scribe one, two, three, four. Um, and uh, that's, that's what they were. They loved the long robes, the power suits, okay? The second thing that Jesus says about them is they were proud lovers of praise. First, proud lovers of power suits. Second, proud lovers of praise. They loved greetings in the marketplace, it says. They didn't care about others and greeting them. They wanted others to know their name. They wanted others to greet them, to praise me, to follow me. They wanted everyone to know their 
name. Being a follower of Jesus isn't popular because we are called to deny ourselves and follow Jesus. We are called to deny ourselves and love others more than ourselves. And to do this, we are, our selfish flesh and this heart has to actually die. And it dies at the cross. You might think, how do I possibly die to my selfishness? It happens at the cross. When we go to the cross, when we meet Jesus there, when we see his selflessness and we ask him for that spirit, it is given to us at that cross. We are enabled to die to ourselves. Only at the cross can we actually experience this death to ourselves without actually dying in our own bodies. We don't have to actually die. We can do it at the cross through faith. That's how this whole Christianity thing works. We can deny ourselves and serve others by meditating and focusing on Jesus at the cross. So these, these, uh, these scribes, they were proud lovers of praise. They said, praise me, tell me how much I mean to you, favorite me. And so I see this as Twitter today. <laughs> so we've seen the Instagram philosophy. We've seen the Twitter philosophy. The third thing Jesus says that he knows about these people is that they are proud lovers of prestige, proud lovers of prestige. They wanted the best seats in the synagogue, it says. This was the religious world. This was, you know, they wanted to be uh, where everybody can see me and I can see better than everyone else and I'm most comfortable. They wanted everyone to think that they were religiously better than them. They wanted religious recognition and they wanted to be religiously popular. They wanted people to think that they were good people and in fact that they were better than them. They wanted people, they, they wanted to say, look how holy I am. Look how holy I am. So, I don't know. I see this one as Google ratings. <laughs> Google ratings today. Like, just look at how good I am. Look at how righteous I am. Okay, so Jesus says, you guys are proud lovers of power suits. You're proud lovers of praise. You're proud lovers of prestige. You want this religious uh, recognition. And you're proud lovers, fourthly, of position. Position. You want the best places at the feast. You want the most comfortable and honored positions and seats. So at every party, every social gathering, you want the recognition and the popularity. Yep, that's, that's something that they were proud lovers of. Okay, They wanted the religious popularity, but they also wanted to be popular at all the parties. Okay, And this I see as Snapchat. Snapchat. They wanted to be included. In all their pop, you know, they didn't want to necessarily remember everything that happened at those parties because they didn't want to be a part of that, but they wanted to be included in those things. All right, the fifth thing that Jesus says he recognizes, he knows about these guys is they were proud lovers of power. He says that they would devour widows' houses. That doesn't sound very nice, does it? You know, what's interesting is these scribes did not receive a regular salary. They were dependent upon others for their money. And, and it's a, a little bit like widows. The widows were also dependent upon other people, but the widows were dependent on the scribes and them writing papers for the widows to receive their uh, help that they would get from their basically church back then. So it was a system that could be abused by the scribes. If the scribes didn't care about the people, they basically extorted them. And they said, you give me money or I'm not going to give money to these widows. And basically what these scribes are doing is saying, my needs are more important than yours. Where do we see that in the world today? I don't know. Maybe GoFundMe. We could say GoFundMe is the equivalent today. But they were saying, my needs are more important than yours. And basically extorting these uh, widows out of their livelihood. And the sixth thing that Jesus recognizes about the people, six is very interesting that there's six of these because six in the Bible is the number of man. And whenever we see fleshly efforts or man, it's generally tied to the number six. So Jesus recognizes six things that men do and he, that he knows about them. And he says here, they were proud lovers of pomp. <laughs> All of them start with P this week. 
hope you recognize that. <laughs> Basically, they would pray these long prayers for a pretense or for a show. They would pray long prayers. We call that pomp. They didn't pray to be heard by God. They prayed to be seen by men. They had this showmanship, okay? They loved acting. They were fake. They were hypocrites. And I see this just like on Facebook, the like button. Some people put long prayers or long stories about their life, and they really want you to hit that like button, like, or on YouTube, like and subscribe, right? Um, these guys, they would pray long prayers, and it was all fake, not real at all. They didn't really want to know God. They just wanted people to think that they had a close relationship with God, but they really didn't. So this third uh, section uh, that we're going to get into now, Jesus is going to tell them a quick story of how he can transform them. He said, first, you don't know who I am, the, the dual nature of Christ. Second, I do know who you are. And the six things we just talked about of how they were proud lovers of all these different things. Third, he's going to say, but you want to be transformed? You're come to the right place. I can transform you. He's going to teach them and transform them. He's going to teach them how they can be concerned about giving instead of getting in this world and how to have a transformed identity. So look at this. He says, now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and he saw how people put money into the treasury and many who were rich put in much. Then one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which make a quadrants. And just so you know, that's a mite is one fourth of a penny. A quadrants is one half a penny. So she threw in a total of half a penny. And he, so he called his disciples to himself and he said to them, guys, 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 assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. For they all put in out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. You know what? These religious leaders that he's been talking to, they were only interested in what they could get out of life. But this widow was interested in what she could give in her life. And I think in our world, 90 some percent, I'll make up a number, we are concerned about what we can get out of life, just like the religious leaders. And we're not super concerned about what we are going to give, how we are going to give God our whole life. But Jesus says, this is the way of transformation. Give it all to God. Most of us live like this. You know, um, we, we live with pride. I deserve this out of life. I deserve college. I deserve a good job. I deserve a perfect family. I deserve comfort. It's the American dream, right? But that is really rooted and grounded in pride. And Jesus is teaching us that there needs to be a transformation from pride to humility. And what this widow shows us is humility in action, what it looks like. She is not caring about herself less. Nope. She doesn't care. She's not thinking about herself at all. And that's the way that Jesus teaches. Now, what's crazy and what's, what's just wild is that you go about the world today and you hear the psychological, you know, popular phrases is self-care. You need to care about yourself. You need to worry about yourself. And Jesus comes along and he says, mm, no, you need to deny yourself, say no to self and death to self, deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow me. This is called self-forgetfulness. And, and so the man's ideas of psychology say, take care of yourself, worry about yourself, put yourself first. Jesus says, that's the way to hell. Don't do that. Deny self. Self is your problem, not your solution. I am the solution, not yourself. You can't fix yourself. 
I can heal you. I can do it for you. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I want to give you an abundant life, but it must be me as the source and not self as the source. Self-forgetfulness. Humility is not caring less about yourself. It's not really caring about self at all. Just forgetting about self. And this only happens if we can really trust God. Believe that he will care about me. If I, if I shut the door on me caring about myself and I serve him and I give my life to serve those that God has put around me, like my family and my friends and even my enemies, if I give my life for this, then I have to be able to trust that God will see and God will take care of me. And God says, I will. I see it. I will do that. I love you. And I will see it and I will care for you. But we have, to, we have to make that decision. Are we going to trust him? Are we going to believe that he will do that? Look at this. This is the way to be great in God's sight. He sees everything. He sees the motives and the deeds of all the religious people and, and also all the carnal people. He sees the weak and the poor per- person who puts their trust in him. You know, the common objection I get is, well, what if, okay, let's, I'm buying into it. What if I fully buy in and I, I give myself completely to serve God? And what if he leaves me alone and stranded and he doesn't take care of me? And I respond to them, who do you think God is? Do you think God is some monster who will hear his child's prayer and he will see his child trying to obey and giving their life in obedience to the commands of God. And he will just say, all right, now let me just watch them die and squirm. No, God will come to them. God will supply. God will pour out his love and grace. Does that mean you get everything you want and this is the way? Well, in the long term, yes. In the short term, God will allow us maybe to even suffer more. But we will know and sense his approval and his love. And these things are so wonderful when we taste and see that God is good. God sees the weak and the poor. Just like this widow was weak and poor. He sees what she does. Humility and faith, like we're talking about here, are what catches God's eye. He sees it. Jesus sitting back, teaching his disciples, teaching, confronting the Pharisees. But all the time, his eye is on what people are doing, what people are giving, what what impression people are making. And you know what catches his eye? The woman who gives, not the most, but the woman who gives out of her humility. The woman who gives with faith and humility. A lot of people ask, what have you done for Jesus? What have you done for God? It is not important. You know, there's this TV show called The Good Place. And in that, in that TV show, they, they present heaven and hell as being this, um, you know, determined who gets in by your score. And everything you do is given a numerical value. And if you do something good or bad, and you, it depends on what happens. And it is just absolutely a lie. That is not how the, how heaven works. Now, it's a TV show, so I don't know why you'd be watching a TV show to get knowledge about uh, the truth of, of life and death in the spiritual world. But the truth that it is presenting is not true. It's not true. Because when God is looking, he's not keeping track of the amounts. You don't have a, a numerical value. Oh, I gave a hundred bucks to the Lord and he gave two bucks. So obviously God looks at me better. That's not true. He judges it all based on who is putting their hope in him, who is operating with humility, not trusting in what they have or what they can give, but trusting in what God has and what God has given through Jesus Christ. And this is the joyful life that we have as his children. It doesn't matter how much you can give. It matters what kind of heart we have when we are serving the Lord. What have you done for Jesus? Trying to measure that is not as important as how you are living and how you are doing what you're doing. Are you doing it with humility? That's everything. So 
our, to summarize, we're wrapping it up right now. To summarize our first lesson, Jesus said, you don't really know me. We learned about the hypostatic union, about how the Jesus has a dual nature. He is both God and man. And so uh, he is, as a man, we must listen to everything that he said. Secondly, uh, we learned that Jesus does know us. He knows our pride. He knows all the ways that we pridefully uh, love and hold on to our um, status and, and all the things that we talked about, those six things that we talked about. And then the third thing we learned, Jesus told us how to have a transformed life through humility and faith. The woman, the widow, demonstrates for us the way uh, that Jesus is asking us to follow him. Give all. Give all. And Jesus will see it and he will recognize it. And that person who gives all is doing what Jesus has asked. And that person will be transformed. And instead of being a person that's always about what I can get out of life, we become a person that's about giving everything. We give to our family. We give all to our family. We do everything. We do our chores. We do our work. We do, uh, we, we live, breathe, sleep, and everything for other people with the self-forgetfulness of humility. That's Jesus' way. Pick up your cross. Deny self. Follow me. That's no to self, death to self, follow Christ. He becomes our life. His will becomes our will. His priorities become our priorities. And he says, this is the way to everlasting life. And it's available to you today. Surrender everything. Give everything to me. I'm not worried about how big and strong you are, how much you can give me. I just want all of you because I love you that much. I want it all. And he's not going to be satisfied with us just being half in. He wants all in for his children because he wants us to have an abundant life. So with all that being said, we can pray, wrap up our our time in the word together and go enjoy uh, this life that God has given us to serve um, him. So Father, we pray that you would help us to know you as you truly are, that you are fully God, but you are fully man and you've given yourself to us. We can be joined to you through faith in you and what you did on the cross. And if anyone is listening today that has never begun a relationship with you, I pray that right now they would pray a simple prayer and say, God, I am a sinner. I have fallen short of all of your commands. I have certainly not been perfect and I need to be saved. And Jesus, I believe that you gave your life, your precious life, your life that was combined with God, your, your dual nature life. You gave it for me as a sacrifice on the cross. You allowed yourself to be murdered in my place, punished in my place. And I accept that. I ask that you would forgive me because of it. Not because I, I'm good or I deserve it or I'm better than anyone, but Lord, I am chief of sinners. I have sinned greatly. I've offended God. And I want that to be washed away. And I want what you have to offer. And so adopt me into your family, God. Forgive my sins for Jesus' sake. And help me to give all that I am and all that I have, my two mites. Help me to give them to you 100%. Help me to live only for you and for others. Jesus, you are my all and my everything. I give my life to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If that was something that you prayed today, you prayed today. I would really love to hear about it. And uh, that's just the first step in following Christ is beginning a relationship with him. All the next steps are about growing that relationship and deepening that relationship with a God who loves you so much that he would save you. But he also says, I will also transform you. I will give you a new life. All, all old things have passed away and everything has become new. In Christ, everything is new. He makes all things new. So we want to walk with you through whatever stage of this journey you're in, whether you want to begin a relationship with God, we can help you with that, or whether you want to uh, grow in your relationship with God, that's what this church is here for, is to disciple you and help you grow. You are loved, you are cherished by God and by us. And if there's anything we can do, please reach out to us and let us know. God bless you guys. We'll talk to you later.
I guess we're done. Ha, 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 ha.